0: Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's great to have you with us uh, today again. Please enjoy the study we prepare today, seeing the invisible. I would like to say hello to our panel today and I will welcome Jerry. It's good to have you with us.
1: Lovely to be here, Nick. Thank you.
0: Ken, it's good to have you too. Thank you, Nick.
2: It's always wonderful to be here and a privilege and looking forward to today's discussion.
0: Joe, thank you for joining us.
3: Uh, thank you, Nick. Always, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Brenton, welcome to the panel. Thank you, Nick. Looking forward to it. And Will, it's good to have you with us. And thank you so much for uh, preparing this uh, Bible study for today. You are going to facilitate this discussion. Please take us through.
4: Thank you, Nick, and welcome panel and listeners. They say seeing is believing. It takes a lot of believing I think that a massive city made out of pure gold with pure with twelve foundations comes floating down like on clouds to the earth before our very eyes. Really? Most would say I'll believe this fantastical thing only when I see it with my own eyes and yet millions believe without seeing so let's consider today how faith gives us eyes but first uh, let's pray joe would you pray for us
3: father thank you for the bible we thank you for how it reveals that which is to all intents and purposes invisible to our eyes through faith Help us to keep our eyes of faith on you and on the love you have for each and every person, everyone, those who may know you and those who don't. We know that you never withhold anything good from us and desire the best for all. Thank Mm. you for the redemption you've provided for all. So let our discussion be a blessing to all who hear and draw all who hear closer to you to see the invisible and claim your promises in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen.
4: Amen. Thank you, Joe. The book of Hebrews presents two profound and challenging statements for the aspiring Christian. Now, faith, it says, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's Hebrews 11, verse 1. And then in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, how are we to be certain about things invisible? We may feel confident of an unseen God when things are all going well, but then while we are trying to live for God, our lives suddenly hit the bumpy road and our spiritual patience and fortitude is tried to the uttermost. That's when the crucibles seem to have the potential to undermine our confidence in a God that we just do not see, the so-called absent God. It looks like those crucibles, by their very nature, would cause us to doubt and even despair of a kind and loving Heavenly Father. It's that uh, kind of where-is-God moment, and I think we've all had them, haven't we? Life has taught us that when we're in the middle of a crucible, like in a smelting process, we rarely perceive any evidence of his intervention on our behalf. We may pray and pray, but nothing seems to make any difference. All we may see is blackness. If only he would visually appear to us and audibly Speak assuring words. There's that saying again, seeing is believing. But tell me, folks, can we really believe without seeing? How can we learn to
5: see God? Your comments there, Brenton. Hebrews 11.27 makes an interesting um, point where it says, By faith he, that's talking about Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I believe, Will, this is talking about his flight from Egypt after he killed the Egyptian. It's, it's prior to the Exodus experience, which is actually revealed in uh, verse 28 and onwards. What's interesting about this is that Moses was under the care of his mother from the age of three until 12 years of age. At 12 years of age, he went to uh, the king's uh, court and was adopted, we believe, probably by Hatshepsut, who was the king's daughter, and he was there until the age of 40. Now, during that time, he would have been initiated into, uh, as the prospective next pharaoh, he would have been initiated into the world of religion, as worshipped by the Egyptians. And it's interesting to note that whilst he took on board everything that they taught him, he did not bow down and worship the Egyptian gods. He was true to the God that he had been instructed. Let's face it, in 11 and three-quarter years, his mother, faithfully as she had been, had instructed him in the ways of the true God. Therefore, she was inculcating into him the wisdom that helps us to see the invisible. All the Israelites believed there was going to come a time when a deliverer was going to come and deliver them, and some of them had had it revealed to them that Moses was that man. In fact, we're told the leaders of Israel uh, were aware that Moses was was that particular man, but he... <laughs> probably decided that the best way of of, um, of dealing with um, rescuing his people from the hand of Pharaoh was to lead them uh, in a military campaign against the Egyptians to rise up and go out that way. However, we all know that what happened is he ended up fleeing for his life and ended up in Midian. He would have had a lot of time to think, Will, a lot of time to think. He would have had a lot of time to reflect on, I could have been the pharaoh of egypt if i was still back there instead of that i'm leading sheep out in the wilderness how does this uh, connect with seeing the invisible i think it's very very evident that his eyes were on a bigger um, a bigger thing and it says this moses had been instructed in regard to the final reward that the humble and obedient servants of god would receive now he would have received that uh from his mother and he weighed that up in comparison to the worldly gain that he could have received. And interestingly enough, if we were to go to Egypt today and Moses had not seen the invisible, we would probably see his mummy somewhere in probably the new Egyptian um, Museum of Antiquities or perhaps in the Valley of the Kings. Instead of that, Moses is in heaven. He's been there for a long, long time. So in his case, seeing the invisible, I think, was based on um, the fact that his mother early had taught him the worship of the true God and God was able to communicate with him. He was able to see the big picture. The other example that was used was about Elisha talking to his servant when they were surrounded by um, a foreign army and Elijah pray, or Elisha rather prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see and his eyes physically were opened, but I think his eyes spiritually were opened as well. So um, how can we be sure of this? I believe it's based on past experience, but I also believe it's based on, in Moses' case, a godly mother who brought him up to love and fear the Lord. How important that is, how important the early training that we give our children, our young people is, I believe, in seeing the invisible if they have had that training, they are able, I believe, to see the invisible. So I think that that's my comments in regard to it, Will. I think it's just so important that we have godly parents to instruct our young ones.
0: And Brenton, I think uh, you pointed out something very special, very important, which um, in these days, you know, is probably not as visible as before, the importance of uh, Uh, having we have in our language uh, like a proverb like the seven years from home i mean to be well taught to uh, the parents to have that vision that their child can be the best possible in this case you know the mother of moses learning about uh, i mean knowing about god's plan with uh, israel and uh, i believe knowing the scripture she taught him the best To be a good child of God. And that's what uh, Moses became.
3: Another point to uh, consider also is that when Moses, you know, he just didn't see the invisible when he left and fled Egypt. We have to remember that he had spent another 40 years in the desert herding sheep. Mm -hmm. And yet he did not give up. By faith, he still saw the invisible. You know he was no no longer in pharaoh's palace being waited on his life would have been hard, and yet he never saw never lost the glimpse of christ uh, of the invisible god and and as far as elisha, you know how encouraging is that it gives us confidence today that if we were if we feel defeated or seem to be alone, that we are actually. Metaphorically surrounded by hills full of chariots or angels working behind the scenes on our behalf. Yes. So we need not despair. You know, we need to look and and believe that they are there, they're watching over us, and God is uh, watching every step that we take.
4: That's true, Joe. Thank you. It's we're we're actually urged to see him by faith because we we gain strength by knowing that God is there even though he is invisible to the naked eye. An interesting little text I found in First Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, and I'm reading it from the New International Version. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Though you have not yes. seen him, you love yeah. him. Yes. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think that's a lovely text that faith gives us eyes. You know, the primary considerations of our study today are those revelations about God that help us, that help sustain us uh, through the, uh, the worst of situations. The first would be the truth about our Father's goodness. The second would be the power in the name of Jesus. And the third, the power of the resurrection. These essential truths will enable us to stand strong when we are in the crucible and may be tempted to doubt everything or even see them as vague, ethereal promises. This is where faith comes to play. Let's look at the first thing that sustains us then, the truth about God's goodness. Faith comes into action precisely at those times that we are tempted to doubt God and his intimate support to our, to meet our need. Now, I've chosen Romans eight to learn something comforting about the presence of our creator. Panel, what can we find in these verses? In Romans 8, that helps guard our minds against doubting God's goodness. What do you think? Anyone?
2: I think, Will, Romans 8, as we read uh, 31 to 39, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I think this is a very interesting verse because, as we obviously know, None of us have seen God and are unlikely to see God for a, some time yet. But in the background, we know he's there. Now, I, one of the things I believe uh, challenges today that Christians have is that our world today is so complex. It's so full of what I would call marvelous things and technology in many ways. And I'm reminded of the verse where the disciples are asking Jesus, uh, show me God, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I think one of the challenges today is that we actually, when we go out our front door, God is everywhere. You look around you and you see the wonders of this earth and everything in it. But I think today people have got so, uh, in a way, blind because of all this other technology and amazing things that they they forget the wonders of God and all the fantastic things that we see around us. But for those of us who have been Christians for a while now, and as you said before, we all come across issues and problems and challenges. Some of them are very, very deep and uh, distressing. But at the very core, we all know that there is some purpose in this. But most of the time, unfortunately, we can't see it, and we just have to trust in God.
4: Certainly. Joe,
3: I think
2: if we read at
3: least portions of it that we're talking about, it would make it a lot clearer and it would just bring out the beauty of the passages. You know, if God is for us, isn't God for us? He is for everybody. He is on our side. Who can then stand against us? You know, God is our protector and our shield. And then it goes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And these are beautiful. The next couple of verses is I've taken tremendous amount of encouragement from them in my own life. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Aren't they beautiful words? They are. Which is in the Christ, in, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are so blessed and privileged and we don't know it sometimes or we forget very easily.
1: Hmm. So can I pick up on your last point we don't know it uh, often and uh, maybe Ken alluded to that in, in a roundabout way as well that uh, a lot of people live very shallow lives they're distracted by all kinds of things and they have no, no experience with God remember that, that uh, uh, Paul speaks here from a very personal experience doesn't he he's, he's gone through so many trials and, and his faith remains strong throughout and it seems to me that, um, perhaps for a lot of people, only in times of crisis are the brakes put on, so to speak, and all the shallowness means nothing anymore. And they start to think or reflect on, Hey, you know, is there something else that I need to focus on? And, um, and I think we, we all need this type of experience, don't we, for us to be able to say, with the same confidence that Paul has, who can separate us from, who can separate me from the love of God? We need that experience personally. Yeah.
5: Well, it's interesting that uh, what Ken read in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Um, I've just realised this text is actually predicated by the second part of the text, the first part we all know well. We all uh, love to quote that all things work together for good to those who love God. The second part says, according to those who are called, according to His purpose. You find that in Ephesians one eleven. You find it in Second Timothy one verse nine. What is God's purpose? God's purpose is to save mankind. So this text is only applicable to those who can see. God's purpose in this world. Does that make sense? It's not a worldwide universal statement saying that, oh, well, if you're going through hard times, it's according to God's will and therefore God is No, if you understand God's purpose, what is God's purpose? God's purpose is to save mankind. If you're on board with that and you're engaged with that, I believe that this um, text makes sense. Otherwise, it just seems to have a universal application but it's really only applying to those who love God and are called according to his purpose.
4: Yes. You know, Brenton and panel, the part that I loved the most of uh, Romans 8 is this verse. Yes. (laughs) He, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I wondered how I would illustrate this text. Perhaps I could compare it to a young couple uh, returning after a short honeymoon. While they were away, the the bride's father agreed to pick up the key for the little apartment unit that the newlyweds would be renting to start their lives together. And on arrival at the parents' home, the husband uh, meets his new father-in-law at the gate who hands him the key with a quick wave they're off and to the little unit to give it a look over as they stop at the unit the man says honey i think there is a there's a truck driver who needs help he took the last few turns with us uh, he might need directions and he's just about to stop behind us so let me ask let me first go and talk with him the truck driver surprises him by asking if he was so and so mentioning his name yes Good, I have a delivery for you. Opening up the back of the truck, the young man sees that it's full of exquisite furniture and household items. Do you have the right address? Soon, with the offloading of all these things, it dawns on the couple that the bride's parents must have emptied their own home to set the young couple up for their new life. Mm. That's not long before the young man is back, I imagine, at his parents' home. Why? Why all this? And the answer says it all. The father says, Don, when we gave you our daughter, we gave you everything we had in life. So what are these extra pieces of furniture after we have turned over the treasure of our hearts to you? Now, let's listen to that text again. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so let me ask, though, panel, how could we possibly think that God would send Jesus to die for us and then turn mean and stingy?
2: Panel, what are your responses? you think
4: that's possible?
2: I think those are amazing words. And for me personally, and I'm sure others, I'm sure, must feel the same, what God has done for us, uh, for me, is just totally incomprehensible. It's just more amazing than I can ever get my head around or will ever get my head around. And when you think about it logically, as you've just said, If God sent his only son who was willing to come and pay the price for us, surely he's not going to stop there. He started a work in us which he wants to finish, and we're part of that work now and we have to partake in it. But it really is an amazing statement, what you've just said.
4: Well, does this really mean that God will do anything, everything, we ask to make his children secure and adequately supplied for, think about it. No limits, Joe. Perhaps you could give us an answer from the Word of God there.
3: Yes, definitely. When when Jesus, when God gave Jesus, He definitely poured out the treasuries of heaven. But um, in John fourteen, fourteen, it says, "If you ask anything in My name, I will do it." And it's important that we look at the context of it. Uh, Jesus was not going to be with the disciples for much longer. The one who had been their support and encouragement was going to heaven. And these disciples were getting a little anxious and confused about some of the things that Jesus was saying about leaving them and returning to the Father. And Jesus knew this. He knew them well. He reassures them with beautiful words from John 14, earlier In the chapter, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And so we have, um, when I am no longer with you in person, I will still be there in spirit. Jesus is promising his presence, even though he may not be there physically. Uh, we may also remember that he promised that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So he's telling them that while he won't be with them, he'll be away, but he will also be amongst them when they're together. While we cannot see him with our eyes, he asks us to believe and have faith in his word and see through the, through, see the invisible through the eyes of faith. And then go, then Jesus goes on to make that extraordinary promise, which I read earlier, which he repeats twice. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. He repeats it twice. So what does that mean? Is this a blank check to ask and get whatever comes into our heads? I don't think so. Reciting Jesus' name in the prayer or at the end of the prayer is not magic. Um, Some might think and act as if it is the case, but it isn't. Um, I'm just thinking of a diplomat who comes in the name of a king or government is representing and, and endorsing the decision of a higher body, not his own or his or her own opinion on the matter. So anything that we ask for in prayer must be, therefore, according to the character of God because he is our higher power and the will of God if it is to be granted. The idea is that if we set aside our will and submit to God's will and the matter brought before God in prayer, because praying for things that are in agreement with God's will is the essence of praying in Jesus' name. Um, So I guess no the the short answer is no we you know we we can't just just quote jesus's name and think that we'll get anything at everything We need to be asking according to god's will and we need to be asking with the right motives and in the right spirit and um it has to be it's got to be in according to god's will and his character rather than something that's just popped into my head. And I thought it might be a good idea, so I'll pray about it, and I'm sure God will answer it. And then we sort of let let our you know let ourselves in for disappointment if we don't get them.
4: Yes, certainly. Well, it's wonderful to know that he he is ready to help us, and in Jesus' name, provide in our needs. And the question is, uh, as you have put it, uh, Joe, it is our needs, isn't it? Not all of our wants. We have seen that uh, our request is in the name of Jesus. If it's in the name of Jesus, we can be certain that the whole machinery of heaven is at work on our behalf. And this is especially a comfort during the time that we f- face life's severest channel challenges. Um, simply because we cannot see the angels or with our natural eyes um, view what's really going on, we're apt to forget but they are constantly with us, seeing and hearing us and noting our words of comfort. Um, Ken, you have a little statement to share with us.
2: Yes, well, nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels it's nothingless and relies wholly on the merits of the Saviour. God would send every angel in heaven to the aid of such a one rather than allow him to be To be overcome. So, in all ages, angels have been near to Christ's faithful followers. The vast confederacy of evil is arrayed against all who would overcome. But Christ would have us look to the things which are not seen, to the armies of heaven and camp about all those who love God, uh, to deliver them from what dangers, seen and unseen. We have been preserved through the interposition of the angels we shall never know. Until in the light of eternity, we see the providences of God. Then we shall know that the whole family of heaven was interested in the family here below on earth. And the messengers from the throne of God attended our steps from day to day. Sometimes when we pray in the name of Jesus, we open our eyes and expect everything to be different around us. But it all looks the same. However, while the power of God may come with dramatic effects, and when Jesus calmed the storm, it may also come in quietness, unnoticed as when the power of God sustained Jesus in Gethsemane. Sometimes dramatic may not suddenly happen, but that doesn't mean that God is not at work with us. I like to use the analogy of electric. Sometimes, when I'm uh, uh, doing children's stories in the, the churches, I bring a PowerPoint along, you know, a socket, a wall socket, and I ask the children, what equipment goes into this? And they come up with TVs and radios and computers and this up north thing. And I says, there's something magic makes this work. Do you know what it is? And of course, it's electric. And we cannot see the electric, but we can see the results of it. And this is what I use to teach them about. This is the way God and Jesus works. We cannot see Jesus, but we can see the power of Jesus and how he makes things work.
4: Yes, that's true. Thank you very much, Ken. Brenton?
5: Um, just to comment on what Ken read about uh, Christ coming in quietness, I believe that's vitally important. Um there's too much emphasis today in Christianity on the spectacular. And uh, whilst that has its place, um, I believe the reason that God's coming comes in quietness is for this. I believe that, um, we have the example of Elijah, which we all know in first Kings 19, but the quietness that it's talking about here is quietness of reflection. When God moves, when God's plans are in operation, often, and I can only speak for my own life, often his greatest work is not done in the spectacular. His greatest work is done quietly and efficiently. And if you have your spiritual um, glasses on, so to speak, you can, in fact, sense and see that God is moving and working. But sometimes I believe working in quietness is necessary to give us time to reflect on what God is doing. We're too anxious, too impatient to move on to the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. We need time to reflect. The the reflection time also gives us greater confidence in the unseen. Yes, of course. Let's
4: look at that second point, the power of the resurrection uh, encouraging us in times of difficulty. You know, to me, the most convincing evidence of the power of God for to rise above those seemingly impossible situations is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think?
1: Yeah, the, the power of the resurrection, indeed, there's um, a lot to be said about that, isn't there? Because if if all we had was this life and faith in God to help us have a good life here, um, that would have some value. I mean, if you look at, sure. there's a beautiful verse in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, God, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. And what a transaction that is and and when you think of the consequences of that uh you know it, it's a divine transaction if you like where uh, god says give me all your troubles all your sins and i will give you all my righteousness and that changes everything because it puts you in a, a completely different position um from god's perspective he looks at you if you by faith accept jesus as your savior And if you confess your sins uh, in true repentance, he cleanses you and considers you just as if you had not sinned. And that's a good enough thing if uh, that's all you had for this life. If you can go through life knowing that you can cast all your burdens on him, um, as though God would say, okay, I've relieved you now of this massive burden, go and have a happy life, that would be pretty good. But far and beyond that, he promises the resurrection power for us, the same resurrection power that, uh, that Jesus experienced when he rose from the dead. And so it, it, we, we've talked about the extravagance of God. Um, you know, it's just unfathomable really when you think it through that uh, God wants us to be with him throughout eternity and for that to happen. We need to be resurrected, and of course, only God can do that. And there's some beautiful promises. That's why it's called the blessed hope in Titus, with which the Christian can live, and, and with which he can die. Um, you know, it's not the end for the Christian because he can look forward to the resurrection. And Paul beautifully points that out in uh, in First uh, Thessalonians, where he talks about um, the dead in Christ rising again when Jesus comes. It's a beautiful passage there. Um, and all the, all the New Testament writers make frequent references to that as well. And one of the most beautiful ones I find is, um, first John uh, chapter five, uh, starting with the verse 11, it says, and, and this is the test, the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. What a beautiful promise that is yeah so there is the promise of the resurrection uh, and that what can be better than that to live with God throughout eternity yes
4: Jerry you you hinted on something really wonderful there that the power that is available to us today when we face our troubles of course the power that is available to us today is the same power that resurrected Jesus, not just out of the ground and back to life, but to the place of power at the Father's right hand. You know, Paul, Paul, I believe, doesn't stop there. He says that the resurrection didn't simply give Jesus just any sort of power, but the power to rule and provide every possible thing his people could ever need for all eternity. That's A great assurance to me when I face the rocky, the rough road in life. Well, someone once said that when our life becomes all tied up, we should give it to God to let him untie the knots. (laughs) How God must long to do this for us. Yet amazingly, we manage to hang on to our problems until we're about to snap. Why do we wait until we're desperate? Before we go to the Lord, I I would like to ask you as a panel, uh, could I invite you to share some texts of scripture that would bolster our confidence in God's offer to help us in times of need?
5: The first Mm -hmm. one, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, is a very good one. Uh, It's probably as good as you'll find of any of God's promises Um, The care suggested here is not just a um, nominal caring, how are you today? I hope you're doing okay. It's an intimate knowledge of. um, Ken would probably understand this a bit better than me. He's of a more mechanical bent than I am. When you understand how things work and you put them together and you see them working or you see them misfiring or going off track, it concerns you. Now, God made us in the first place. He created us in his image. He wishes to restore us in his image. So I see in this text a very simple analogy, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We'll get to a few other texts further on, but it it indicates to me a God who is intimately acquainted with us and wants to say, give all of your cares, all of your troubles to me. I will take care of them. I will sort them out in my own way and in my own time. There's another lesson we need to learn. God's timing is very different to our timing.
0: Yeah. And also another passage in the Bible, um, uh, wheel and Panel, we find that in um, Psalms 55, verse 22, it says, Give your burdens to the Lord. And he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to sleep and fall. (laughs) That reminds me of Jesus Christ because we just spoke about that, uh, the power of the resurrection and reminds me how Jesus committed himself to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. You know, he fully gave himself to God trusted in God, and the invitation is for us also, not to carry our burdens, not to be crushed under our uh, weight, you know, and, and burdens, but to give it to the Lord who knows how to take care of it and to give us victory, which was the case with Jesus, our Lord. I think that's wonderful. He does that well too, doesn't he?
3: Another really good one for me, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, I think it's, uh, I find a lot of encouragement from that because no matter how bad things look at the moment, I know that he is there with me and he's guiding me through.
5: True. True. Um, one of the main ones, Will, that uh, is often quoted when we start dealing with this subject is Matthew 6:25 to 33. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm certainly going to read verse 33, which in summarising where Christ is talking to those who are listening about um, chasing after this, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear, and all the rest of it, right at the end of it all, he makes a statement. He says, your heavenly father knows you need all these things. But then he says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In other words, God is aware of our needs. But have you ever thought this, this section that we often quote is actually, I believe, addressed primarily to well-to-do people? The reason for that is because the previous verses say no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or or love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, if he was talking to the fort, the poor, that's really not terribly relevant. The poor were struggling to make ends meet every single day. Every day was battle. I believe he's primarily talking to those, shall we say, who are better off, who maybe had already made their millions and saying your focus needs to be on the kingdom of God rather than what I've already got. How am I going to increase that? And, of course, he told a parable, as you know, the parable of the rich fool in the book of Luke. But here I I find in this particular section he's saying seek God first, put his priorities first. If you've made your first um, couple of million, the um, desire is there to keep going. But I want you to focus on seeking my righteousness first. Interesting word for righteousness. Do you know what it is? Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Another word for righteousness is seek his kingdom and his justice. His justice. Now, that puts a whole different... Uh, perspective on things because we all know in society that often money talks and uh, he's really saying that here in this particular um thing we should be more concerned about justice we should be more concerned about um, helping our fellow brothers and sisters in society than concentrating on where is my next million going to come from
2: Uh, Another scripture I'd just quickly like to add to that is Proverbs 3, 5. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. Uh, I think that's an excellent scripture. It's my favorite and I think it's one worth remembering when we come across difficult times.
4: Yes, all these biblical concepts help us when things are not looking good for us uh, or when we're having a rough rough time or passing through a crucible you mm. know to think that no one cares about what is happening to us is very unpleasant but to think that god does not know or care about us can be most distressing i think that the children of israel in captivity must have felt this keenly and i want to invite your comments
3: well to the, um, to the Judeans that were exiled in Babylon, and we know that they were, they were to spend 70 years in Babylon. It would appear to them that he, God did not seem to care much about their situation. They were there a long time. They were still exiled. They still f- were feeling abandoned by God because of their sin. And I wonder, do we ever feel like that? But Isaiah speaks words of comfort to them. Um, Isaiah 40 is a beautiful passage in which the prophet speaks so tenderly to the people about their God. And this is it. He says, he tends his flock. That's referring to God. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now, these words are for us as well. It would have been so easy to think that because they were going through this hard experience that God had somehow forgotten them or that they were out of favor with God, God had rejected them, that they had to do something to win back his love and protection. Mm -hmm. question to consider for us is despite their sin and rebellion, their unfaithfulness, which we have looked at in previous discussions, did God ever stop loving his people? Did he ever give up on them? In Hosea, it says God, and this is God speaking, how can I let you go? How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? You know, God feels exactly the same way about each and every one. Um, and so this is terribly encouraging that when things look bleak, and a distressing, and we may feel that we're in captivity, that God has forgotten and abandoned us. We can remember some of these beautiful texts that God is right there, and He's with us, and He has the situation under control.
4: Yes, Joe. In in times of difficulty, it's uh, and uh, and you feel abandoned. It's good to uh, bolster our courage with wonderful assurances from God's word. You know, something that just comes to mind is um, that the people in the captive land asked the Israelites, um, sing us some of your songs Mm -hmm. from your homeland. Mm -hmm. And the response was, how can we sing songs of our homeland when we are in this captivity place? And they hang their harps on the willow trees, longing for home, longing for Jerusalem. A feeling of an abandon of abandonment, you know. <clears throat> there is another group who might have considered that their way was hidden from God, and that that group was the people of the Book of Esther. Um, I wonder, Brenton, if you could encapsulate the story of Esther for us.
5: I'll do my best. Will <laughs> uh, in a short period, basically, Esther became queen of the Persian Empire as a result of the previous queen being deposed. Um, She was a Jewess, and the prime minister at the time was a guy called Haman. And Haman uh, was related to Agag way back in the days when uh, the king Saul was told to eliminate the Amalekites. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. So there is some feeling here um, he's a descendant, um, Haman of that, and he managed to get the king to pass a decree to eliminate the Jews based on the fact that they were, shall we say, um, they were not following the laws and customs of the Medes and Persians. And so the whole of Esther's nation was in peril because at a certain time, and it was given, there was a specific time when they were to be eliminated. Mordecai, who was her uncle, but who was at the king's gate, told her that uh, if she didn't do something, that they were going to be eliminated. Now, interestingly enough, in the Book of Esther, the word God is not mentioned at all. However, in Chapter 4, Mordecai says this to the queen uh, in treating her to go and talk to the king about it. He says this. Who knows that you may not have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So she prays. She says uh, fast and pray. So the word fast and pray is used in there. Her and her maids fasted and prayed. She went in before the king, and the end result of it all was that Haman's wicked plot was overthrown, and the Jews were able to defend themselves whilst the decree itself was not revoked because no, degree of, no decree of the laws of Medes and Persians can be revoked. They were able to defend themselves. And ultimately they were victorious and, of course, we have the Feast of Purim, uh, which the Jews celebrate even to this day in regard to this particular matter. Um, even though God is not mentioned here, his concern for his people in captivity is so clear through this particular story. The timing is so right. uh, When she goes in before the king, she says to Mordecai, you know, if I go in before the king and I'm not invited, I'll be executed. Well, the king held out his scepter to her. Everything in the book of Esther went according to God's timing. Mm. And I think that's one of the big lessons we can learn from this week's study about seeing the invisible Whilst we can't see how God works, if we trust him, his ways will become evident when they're fulfilled, but then when we reflect on how it's been fulfilled, we will be able to see ways in which God has quietly been working to bring about the necessary uh, result.
4: Yes. Any other comments from the panel? We can imagine how easy it would be to conclude that, in such terrible circumstances, that God must have deserted these people. But we are not to fear. The same God who saved His chosen ones in the book of, in the story of Esther, will save them again in the final crisis. Now we must remember that those um, those events is uh, of the decree, an irrevocable law have them destroyed, will actually be um, repeated again in the future according to Revelation 13, verse 5. And I'd encourage our listeners to take a look at that chapter. It's a a prophecy of things, unhappy and uh, difficult times to come, time of testing, a crucible time for God's people. But we can be sure the same God who saved his chosen people in the book of Esther, will save them again in this yes. final crisis.
0: Yes. Nick? want to add there uh, Will, um, I mean, speaking to myself and uh, uh, if anyone can um, relate to that, is that to be able to trust in God, to have that faith in God, in the invisible God, is to have a permanent relationship with god on daily basis Mm. you cannot afford only to turn to god when you are in uh, in trouble because you know you don't have that relationship to really relay on god and trust on god but if you have that relationship with god it's like a, a child and his father you may know those stories you know like when the father says oh come throw yourself in my hands here from the branch or from the tree he will do it, why? because he knows his father he had a relationship with his father yes. and I'm encouraging through this uh, study which we have today to make a daily commitment to follow God, to know God, to discover God, to learn more about God, to strengthen our relationship with God that we may be able to trust in Him, even when there is no visible sign of His presence in our life. Yes. Yes.
4: Yes. True. Thank you, Nick.
1: Yeah, hasn't God said He would give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? And isn't this Spirit a real, true, actual guide? So long as we come to our Heavenly Father humbly and with a spirit to be taught, willing and anxious to learn, why should we doubt God's fulfilment of his own promise? Make this a subject of prayer and trust him. Still trust him to the uttermost, that his Holy Spirit will lead you to interpret aright his plans and the working of his providence. Faith grows strong by coming in conflict with doubts and opposing influences. The experience gained in these trials is of more value than the most costly jewels.
4: That is so true. What a precious uh, promise the Lord has for us in difficult times.
2: Well, I would just like to add to that. This is why it's so important to read the Bible, because to trust God, you have to know God. And if you're not reading the Bible, you're not really going to understand the way God works and what he's like. So it's so critical that you read the stories and put yourself in the place of those people that are experiencing those difficult times.
4: You're
5: so right. Brendan? Can I just uh, add a couple of um, little things before we close, Will? This comes from a very interesting chapter entitled Gethsemane. It says his, that's Christ's decision, is made. He will save man at any time cost to himself Amazing. Uh, his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may have everlasting life in other words to summarize um, seeing the invisible god did this and he was willing to do whatever it took it's a saying that we use in our society today if god was willing to do whatever it took to save us surely the least we can do was do whatever it takes to give our hearts and our lives to him so that he can work his will and his way out in us.
4: A very appropriate appeal, Branton. yes. I would like to invite everyone who is listening to make the Lord their refuge. In good times and also in bad times, trust him. He has promised to secure us an eternal reward. It's worth trusting him. He has great things in store for us all. I wonder if we could end with prayer. And, Ken, would you pray for us, please?
2: Certainly will. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this opportunity today to look into your word on this very, very heavy and deep topic on faith and crucibles. Lord, we all experience difficult times, as you know, but as we read into your word constantly, Lord, we see that you are with us no matter what's going on, even though, Lord, we may not see you, we may not hear your voice, but you've promised us you'll never leave us no matter what. Yes. Heavenly Father, we need to form this deep relationship with Jesus to understand how everything works, how you've put place, things in places for us, for our benefit, and no matter what happens, no matter what we're going through, you will always be with us. Help us, Heavenly Father to grasp that statement, Mm -hmm. to understand that you are always beside us. We just thank you, Lord, for all the wonderful blessings you give us every day. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful blessing of your word in the Bible that we can look at constantly and build our faith. And all these things, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus.
5: Amen.
0: Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, your participation today. that was a wonderful uh, time together and a good study we are uh, inviting you my dear listener to join us again uh, next time when we are going to talk about a life of praise learning how to praise God until then may God richly bless you and continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus